This season of Desert Island Dishes is brought to you in partnership with Lloyds Bank and their Smart Start Bank account for 11 to 15 year olds. When I was growing up, my parents would always tell us that money didn't grow on trees and if you look after the pennies, the pounds will look after themselves. But to be honest, I never really understood what these old sayings meant or what they were trying to teach me. And I think like with lots of life skills, these things are just so much easier to learn from a young age. And this is definitely something I think about now with my own children. And I can see it in my niece because since she got her Lloyds Bank Smart Start account, she has become somewhat of a saving superstar. She's already learning how to manage her money and learning these habits, which are going to make her adult life so much easier. She's also so excited about using it too, which is brilliant. They get their own card, they get a savings account and a spending account. It's just such a good idea and something that you can do as a parent that's going to help them flourish in the future. It's so clever. It's so good for their confidence. And it's just something that I wish genuinely had been around when I was that age. I think as parents, we all know we have a lot of plates in the air. (laughs) And even with the best intentions, we just don't have the time to teach our children everything that we'd like to. And sometimes that means important conversations get rushed or brushed over. So I really am excited to be working with Lloyd's on this campaign because it's all focused on building financial confidence in children. To be eligible, parents and guardians need to have an existing Club Lloyd's current account and be registered for internet banking. To find out more, head to lloydsbank.com forward slash smart start. Thank you very much to Lloyd's Bank. Hi, I'm Margie Nomura and welcome to the Desert Island Dishes podcast. This is the podcast where every week I ask my guests to choose their seven Desert Island Dishes. These range from finding out about the dish that most reminds them of their childhood, the best dish they've ever eaten, and of course, the last dish they would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island. The question is, what would you choose as your last meal? Hi, how is everyone? I hope you're all really well. We've got a lovely episode for you today with the brilliant Shalina, who... You know when you meet someone and they just radiate kindness and you just know they're a thoroughly nice person? Well, that is Shalina. So I hope whatever you're doing whilst you're listening to this, this brings you a little bit of sunshine to your day. I feel very back in the swing of things now, which is a lovely feeling. And there are more and more of you listening each week, which is kind of crazy and also the cherry on the top. I think mainly it's growing by word of mouth, which is brilliant. So thank you very much to any of you who are helping to spread the word by telling friends or work colleagues about the podcast. And I wanted to say thank you very much to our sponsor, Lloyds Bank, for supporting us and helping us to bring the podcast to you each week. We wouldn't be able to do it without them. Now, that's enough of me waffling on. Here is today's episode. I do hope you enjoy. My guest today is Shalina Permalu. She describes herself as a cook, an author, and restaurateur. Shalina grew up in Southampton with her Mauritian parents and siblings. It was only in 2011 that she decided to follow her heart and gave up a career in diversity and equality to enter the MasterChef competition. 
Over 6.5 million viewers watched Shalina triumph in the MasterChef final with her instinctive spicing and intense flavors. She brought Mauritian food to TV for the first time, inspiring legions of home cooks to try out her recipes at home. Since winning the title, she's written two cookbooks, is a regular on TV and radio, and has opened her own restaurant serving Mauritian food in her hometown of Southampton. Shalina has said, it's true what they say, winning MasterChef can change your life. Welcome, Shalina. Thank you for having me. Such a pleasure to have you on Desert Island Dishes. And to kick things off, I wondered, how do you feel about the idea of going to a desert island? Uh, It sounds perfect. I would take my daughter (laughs) and me and her would just stay there. We will. That would be incredible. Yeah. You are a very busy person. Do you relish the thought of being on an island and the chance to relax and switch off? Or is that alien to you? It is really alien to me. Like I'm used to having people call me all the time and having my phone nearby. But if I was with my daughter, then it would be fine. I would just chill, relax and yeah, find things to eat. (laughs) (laughs) You were born in Southampton to Mauritian parents who migrated to the UK in the 1970s. And you say you grew up surrounded by Mauritian food, which was almost always home cooked. So I thought we'd dive straight into the first desert island dish. And that's the dish that most reminds you of your childhood. I found it really hard thinking about these answers. Um, But for me, the dish that reminds me of growing up is plain steamed basmati rice, mum's perfectly cooked tender white rice with lanchinoir, which is black lentils. It's Mm. like a soup almost, a bit like a a bouillon kind of stock, which has got onions, it's got thyme, it's got garlic and ginger, some dried chilies, a few herbs um, fried down with black noodles, which are then put into a pressure cooker. And it's the noise of the pressure cooker and that hiss and the rattle of the metal that reminds me of childhood. The pressure cooker always reminds me of my childhood. We would literally scoop those lentils right over the white rice, serve it with pima confit, which are basically bullet chilies, Mm. which are tiny and ferocious that are pickled. They're normally brought back in in suitcases as contraband. (laughs) Um, Mauritians, I'm giving away the secrets of the Mauritians traveling. (laughs) Um, But they're pickled chilies and they are ferociously hot and we'll have it with a salad as well so that for me is pure comfort it's pure childhood and I still make a version of that for my daughter that sounds absolutely amazing we'll hope that no customs officials are listening to this but is that a very traditional weeknight dish that you'd have in in Mauritius yeah and it's um traditionally vegan and I do think about that like the dishes that we grew up with I would say 60 to 70 percent of them were vegan growing up because just of the nature of the the menu in the Mauritian food, really. Pulses, rice, salads, veggies, that really is an entire meal for us. Mm. And yeah, it is one of my daughter's favorites. Sounds absolutely delicious. From everything that I've read, cooking for you has always been really fun. Like you spent a lot of time growing up with your mom and your aunt cooking. And it sounds like from a young age, food has always been so much more than just food. It's been a way of showing love. Do you think your love for food now is is wrapped up in those early memories? Yeah, and I think they've evolved as well because 
I'm sort of unpicking those memories as I get older, especially being an older mum. Am I allowed to even say that? Am I an older mum? No, you okay. are not. It was just, I'm still, the consultant told me I was a geri- I was in geriatric pregnant pregnancy. I okay? think they say and that from 33 <laughs> and over, literally. which I mean is crazy. So um, I say that, but I suppose I'm seeing things from a different perspective as I'm seeing my daughter grow. So I'm seeing those cool memories form and it reminds me of the cool memories I had growing up. So it is, it's the unraveling of that childhood and certain dishes and certain smells And it's those moments of nostalgia that I think is incredible with food, really. But yeah, it is really always wrapped in love. Like for me, food is love. It's Mm. the way that I show my love to people. If I love you, you're going to get fed and you're going to put on weight. It's how people know that they're loved by me through the kind of food that I cook for them. Even though you're British, you say you've always felt like Mauritius is your spiritual home. And growing up in Britain, you say you grew up always thinking that you were Mauritian. And I think you're 12 by the time you went to Mauritius. And and that's a great age to experience something like that because you're old enough to truly appreciate it and also remember it. Can you tell us a little bit about that first trip and how you felt going there? So the first thing that happened was getting off the plane and my hair just going wild. The humidity... (laughs) I turned into Diana Ross, literally, (laughs) like my hair just went poof. But it was the smell, gosh, the intensity of the burning sugarcane. And that hit me first. It was that gorgeous raw smell of sugar, molasses, and burning Mm. of the sugarcane. Does that happen throughout the year? Yeah, so there'll be be different seasons for when sugarcane is being cropped and harvested and then burnt. So... um, you'll smell those smells at different points of the year. And the other smells were the spices, the lushness of the earth. Mauritius is really green. It's more green than people think because they just assume it's all palm trees, coconuts, and blue seas. But the actual island is green. We refer to it as a green island. But what stood out the most for me was the difference of me. So I always thought I was Mauritian growing up in Southampton because I was visibly different. And the minute I got on my island, I thought, yeah, I'm with my people now. Like, I'm home. I'm here. (laughs) And they were like, you're not like us. You're like a hybrid. And I looked different. I sounded different. I was different. I was not Mauritian. So where was I? Where was I from? So there's a real uniqueness in a British Mauritian identity. And that's what I really hold on to. I am from here. I'm from there. But my soul is like that mixture of whatever my parents brought us to, really. Did you find that confusing at the time? Yeah, I mean, I remember growing up knowing I was different. And back in Southampton, back in the day, it was quite racist. We're very much minority. People of colour would stick together. Like, I knew all the black and Asian people from the area. And it's changed now. It's quite a diverse city now. But back then, I felt different. And I knew I was different. And we would crave to tell each other the differences like where are you from Jamaica where are you from Trinidad where are you from Mauritius and it was all of those things that were really really amazing and our food would be the things that connected us to each other but yeah in Mauritius I was the non-Mauritian cousin they're like you're from England I'm like I'm not English (laughs) I'm not I promise you um but I am British I wondered because you had 12 years of hearing about Mauritius from your parents When you went for that first time, obviously it was amazing and an incredible experience, but did it live up to everything that you had imagined it would be? Like, was it what you pictured? The first thing that I remember thinking is all about the food. 
The food tasted so different. The Mauritian food that we were making, that mum was making, had been adapted because of what was available in Southampton, what she could get hold of. So mm. she was adapting you know, subconsciously her recipes based on her environment. So going back to Mauritius and eating the real deal, like the proper authentic flavors, they were different. They weren't as pungent, they weren't as strong. And again, that is because my mum adapted and she was using maybe Indian spices rather than Mauritian or she was using African spices instead of the Mauritian ones. The rice tasted different, the meat tasted different, the fish, oh, the fish was amazing, like it's gorgeous. Um, but the smells were intense, the heat was intense. It was, it was an intense experience for a young girl who thought she was Mauritian and wasn't. Yeah, yeah, I can only imagine. And for anyone listening who might be unfamiliar with Mauritian food, it's a cuisine that draws on so many different influences from French, Indian, African, British and Chinese. It's traditional fusion food that's absolutely. steeped in cultural history. How would you describe it? I, absolutely how you described okay. it, bang on. <laughs> like it is true fusion. I know a lot of the time people think fusion is confusion, mm. but this is how our island was created. It's those ethnic and religious identities that have formed the food. And it would be absolutely familiar to us to have a table where you'd have fried noodles, Indian-style curry with a French baguette and African-style sauces and having it all together, it doesn't feel confusing for us. No, that doesn't sound confusing to me. That sounds <laughs> absolutely delicious. Let's pause there and talk about the second desert island dish. And that's the first dish you learned to cook. So if I'm honest with you, I can't remember the first dish I learned to cook properly. But I did want to tell you about the first dish that I learned to cook with confidence. Yes. Which is corned beef. Now, corned wow. beef is, is a memory for me. It was the becoming of me. So corned beef and rice is a staple. And actually in Mauritius, we have corned mutton because there's lots of Hindus on the island. So they developed corned mutton out of lamb. So corned beef, corned mutton, I sort of use it interchangeably in my mind. Okay. But growing up, this was a staple. Now, when I went to uni, it was the first dish I cooked in the, in the communal kitchens. So I started frying up my, my beef and frying up the onions the chilies, the tomatoes, cooking it down into a really rich tomato sauce, which is called a rogai. And it's a Creole sauce, which is the base sauce that we use across Mauritius. I'm frying it up and one girl comes in and I didn't know at this point, but she ends up being my best friend for life till now. And she's like, oh, what, what is that smell? It smells like stew. And I'm like, where are you from? She's like, Ghana. She's like, it smells like Ghanaian corned beef stew. And I'm like, no, this is Mauritian. <laughs> I'm Mauritian. And she's like, no, that looks like stew. I was like, no, it's Mauritian. Why don't you eat some? And we shared some food and it was a corned beef and rice. And she added some Ghanaian chili paste to it, shito, which is dried fish with chilies rendered down, super hot, really potent. It tasted very much like a Mauritian paste and just sat there and we became really, really close. That was actually how I made quite a lot of friends. This simple, humble, frugal tin of corned beef and it was the dish that I most confidently cooked throughout uni. Even to this day, just before I went away for a few days, I thought, what do I fancy? Me and Nia, my daughter. And um, she said she wanted corned beef with rice. And I was like, that sounds perfect. That's Ooh, what we're going to have. How amazing is that? I love it when a dish takes on that much meaning to a person. Yeah, who'd have thought corned beef, eh? And I know people are going to say, like, corned beef, it's 
highly processed. I'm not suggesting you eat it every day. When I talk about this, it's about nostalgia. It's about memories. You know, you do your own dietary research after, but this is a memory and it was those core memories. And I know that when my friends hear this, they're going to remember those moments that we were brought together with a plate of corned beef and rice. Yeah. You say that making people happy by sharing food is the very essence of how you define your own cultural identity, which I thought was such a lovely way to think about that. Yeah, I think um, there's lots of different perspectives of how you would identify yourself. But there is something so innately unique about how you share food with people. I suppose it's the uncovering of you. Mm. You know, there's so many ways of being naked with yourself and being truly authentic. But like you can't hide from a plate of food and you can't hide what you love. Mm. If you love a particular flavor and someone doesn't like it, you know, when you make a simple cake... And you've worked hard on it and you, you slice into it and you think it looks great. And someone sits down and you offer them a slice. You wait for them to eat it first. You look and see if they're happy with it. So, yeah, it's a real moment of truth, isn't it? Mm. It's a real vulnerability. Absolutely, yeah. You spent your 20s working as a project manager in the field of equality, diversity and inclusion before deciding to apply for MasterChef. You were, by the sounds of it, doing very well and you were very good at your job. Tell us what led you to apply. Um, so I was always known to be the person that cooked for people. I would be the person that would cook for you if you had a breakup. You know, you'd call me and tell me what was going on. I'd say, come over, there's a pot of food. And, you know, by the end of the evening, you may well have forgotten that you were sad. <laughs> you might well have a food coma. <laughs> um, but I was always a person that would be very reliable for, for providing lots and lots of food. Um, so throughout uni, I fed, fed everyone, even forgot that I was doing a degree. I did psychology, but I spent the whole time feeding people. That kind of followed me through in my 20s. And I just felt that there was something missing. I knew what I loved, which was the coming of people. And that's why I focused so much on diversity and inclusion. For me, I really wanted to elevate everyone and because I felt like I'd done well in my career, I didn't want to be, I want to bring other people with me. So other women, other women of color, people who are disabled, people from the LGBTQI backgrounds, where whatever the inequality is, I felt like I needed to fix it. I think that's probably a better way to explain it, really. So that's why I ended up in that industry. Mm. I just wanted people who didn't have opportunities to have opportunities. I felt privileged that I was a Mauritian born in the UK and I think that really stuck with me. Um, but what I realized whilst working in equality was the best conversations came when I had a budget for food. Mm. So there was one particular event that I did. I think I was about 23. And I found the best Punjabi samosas, like the best with the best tamarind chutney. My mouth was watering. I yeah. should have eaten before <laughs> this. And everyone remembered the samosas. People were able to talk because they were eating something that they enjoyed and they felt that that kind of bonded everyone. Mm. It was like that moment where actually if you've got good food around a table, it doesn't matter what, what background you're from, what your social class is, you know, wh which house you live in. None of that really matters. What matters is a conversation around the table. So I realized that food was a real conduit for me. Mm. That actually had I been using food all my life as a way to express myself and why hadn't I explored that more? And I applied for MasterChef and I got through and I actually quit my job when I got down to the last 18. Mm -hmm. And it's not because I thought I was going to win. I never in 
a million years thought it would be me. Major imposter syndrome. It couldn't, I still don't believe it was me. But I quit my job because I no longer wanted to do the work I was doing before. I wanted to work in food. There was a real desire and passion in me that had ignited. Like even no matter what happens with MasterChef, I want to cook. I want to feed and I just want to pour my heart into parts of food that I want other people to eat. <laughs> were you ever scared at the idea of turning something that you were so passionate about into work? Yes, money. I'm from a cultural background where you need to get your act together financially. Um, I remember being 14, telling my mum I wanted to be a chef and she just sort of looked at me. I did not bring you to this country. You're going to be a doctor, an accountant. You're going to be I was just looking at her already knowing that I had disappointed her, even by suggesting it. <laughs> um, so I knew I, I could never be a chef. I was told, point blank, go and get a degree. So I did. I got my degree. And I worked hard, made some money. And I thought, even if I'm poor for a bit, I know I can make money from this somehow. So let me just not tell anyone what my plans are. Oh, you didn't tell anyone. So I saved enough money for a year during that period of time and then applied for MasterChef and it all kind of synergized like, you know, the stars aligned, however you want to think of it. But it was the right time mm. and it was opportune and MasterChef was a journey. It was very much a spiritual journey. The year you went on, there were 25,000 applications, which is fierce competition. So to even get on in the first place was quite an achievement. And you not only got on the show you went on to win it which is amazing you were the second woman ever to win and the first non-white woman which is even more brilliant 6.5 million people watched you win which is just mind-blowing can you even get your head around that no and I, I don't like to think about okay. it <laughs> sorry for bringing it up <laughs> can you tell us what your winning menu was I certainly can yeah so the winning menu was my 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 version of the best experiences of Mauritius. Okay. So the starter was an octopus with tobiko, flying fish row, and it had fennel and mango. Mango featured throughout the whole menu. Mm. But that starter was inspired by a classic Mauritian octopus baguette that you would eat on the beach traditionally. It's like pickled, steamed octopus which is put into a French-style baguette, and you just chew on it and eat it. The main was my interpretation of set curry. Set curry means seven curries, which is traditional for weddings, mm -hmm. typically served on a banana leaf, and you have seven varieties of curries, pickles, breads, and things. So I took that, re-inspired it, and turned it into my version of set curry, which ended up being a mutton curry with seasoned rice, a marinated bone marrow. Who knew I could do that kind of stuff? It took me like three hours to tease that bone marrow out perfectly into a cube. Um, and the dessert was a chocolate samosa with a mango cannelloni and star fruit and passion fruit. It was just every fruit that I love shoved into a dessert. I remember that pudding. And I know you've said many times that you didn't expect to win, but I do remember watching that series and very much deserved to win. A lot of people say that, but I remember vividly thinking I'm not winning. And it is imposter syndrome and it does happen and it is a real thing. But yeah, only last year did I sort of fully embrace the fact that I'm a chef, I'm a restaurateur, like I know this cuisine and I've earned my stripes in the kitchen. And I still had moments before that thinking I wasn't good enough, which is crazy. Mm, it's so interesting, isn't it, how the human mind works. I have many more questions, but <laughs> let's pause there and talk about the third desert island dish. And that's the best dish you've ever eaten. Okay. 
So whether it was the best dish I've ever eaten or whether it was the best moment of food, but it was a moment in Italy and I remember it vividly. I think the reason why I loved it so much is because before we started the meal, the waiter came with a bib. Oh, that's always a good sign. And I think that did it. <laughs> that sealed the deal for me. Uh, so I put this bib on and it was a lobster spaghetti restaurant. And this restaurant does nothing else but lobster spaghetti and only on a particular day of the week. But the big bowl of spaghetti, tomato, lobster came out. Perfectly cooked spaghetti al dente, perfectly cooked tomato sauce and perfectly cooked lobster. Now, for me, food is not always about the complexity or the spicing or how long it's taken you to prep. It's about how it makes you feel. And that first bite of spaghetti with the lobster, it was the perfect mouthful. Everything made sense. It was just pure happiness. Like, I could have forgotten who I was with. I still do at yeah. times. <laughs> I felt I was there on my own. <laughs> but I had just the you bib. and your bib. <laughs> and, you know, you get involved in the lobster. You start chewing on it. You, you suck all the flavor out of it. And everyone's doing the same. So you feel completely at home. But that bowl of, of lobster spaghetti in Italy is the most memorable for me. That sounds... Absolutely incredible. And the simplicity of it, I wonder, is it the kind of dish that you almost wouldn't want to go back and eat again, just in case it didn't live up to that perfect moment? Yeah, absolutely. It certainly is etched in my mind. And I don't want to play with that memory. Yeah. I want it to stay purely because it fills me with so much joy. Mm. So winning MasterChef, I mean, it, it must have meant a lot to win for the reasons that we've already mentioned, but it also must have felt really good to win cooking the food of Mauritius. It was one of those funny things, because I remember doing MasterChef thinking, I'm not going to make anyone proud doing this. How is cooking going to make a difference to people's lives? I always felt that I needed to do something that mattered. I needed a job that made changes. And it did. There were people who emailed me saying seeing our Mauritian humble frugal food from our small little island in the Indian Ocean being shown on TV really filled the island with pride. And my mum was proud, my auntie was proud, my uncle was proud. The island all came together. Mm. It wasn't just Mauritius. Like, West Indian community got together, the African community got together, Indians, like... I felt like I was doing it for a lot more people being the first person of colour. Mm. It was a magnificent moment and I felt very, very proud that I could share that experience. Mm. I, I feel like, like it would have been quite easy to go on and try to amend your style of cooking to what you thought the judges wanted or, yeah. or what other people were doing. But you didn't do that. You really stayed true to yourself. Well, there were times I wavered and I did that. And actually, I remember John coming up to me and giving me a good telling off um, because he knew what I was playing at. He, he actually said, you just, you need to know who you are. And it was always about confidence. The whole show was about confidence and about authenticity and about believing in myself which was still a journey after winning MasterChef really. Mm. You've described getting hundreds of messages from girls who wrote to thank you for being someone who represented someone that they felt they could relate to on TV which I can imagine felt amazing but you have also talked about the flip side where you experienced racism and I think for a long time you didn't talk about that until relatively recently and I wondered could I ask you about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's one of those things. You've been given an incredible opportunity and you don't want to sully it with any 
anything because you think it's going to go. If you start talking about these things, you start talking about the issues that you're facing or the complexity of the industry. All of a sudden, it's like, oh, I don't want to really book her because <laughs> she might start moaning. And that is actually genuine. That's kind of the reason why you stay stay quiet because you've got all these opportunities that come your way. You're scared you're not going to get them if you if you stay true to who you are. I don't feel that way now. Um, I don't need to be in spaces that make me feel uncomfortable or anxious. Um, but the racism was absolutely real. I had it all over Twitter. And everyone's like, Ugh, how can she be winning just with a curry? Like, go back to wherever you're from. I'm like, yeah, I'm from Africa. And what is the problem? Like, have you, do you know Mauritian cuisine? And I responded to some and then realized I can't battle against all this racism. So I had about 30% of my comments online were negative. 70% 70, 70 were amazing, like amazing. It is the wrath of social media, to be honest. Like you do need to develop a thick skin. But I look back now and I, I really feel that I should have said more, but I do now. So if I go somewhere and I've not enjoyed it or someone doesn't make me feel comfortable, I feel very confident enough to say, I don't like where this conversation's going. You talk about your your fear in those early days of, of speaking up and being tarnished in a work capacity and now having the confidence to, to speak up. I mean, obviously, you're hugely successful and you've built this incredible career, so you're in a different position. But do you think times have changed to enable you to feel like that? Or is it is it more of a personal growth? I think you hit the nail on the head. I think it's personal growth. I think you get to a point where you feel comfortable in your own skin let's pause in possibly the worst ever segue <laughs> we're going to talk about the fourth desert island dish Shalina what is your favorite sandwich okay I am not a sandwich person okay and I'm going to say this fervently and I'm going to really disgruntle a lot of your your listeners I've just never got my head around a sandwich okay so cold food at lunch I'm talking about the triangle British sandwiches you know, the white bread, brown bread. I don't care what color bread. It's they're always triangles. Well, that's because triangles taste better. Yes. <laughs> um, so I'm not going to be able to answer this in a traditional way of okay. a sandwich. There is something, because it's Ramadan at the moment, so I thought yes. I would bring this up because it's quite key to Ramadan. And it is something that I make at home with my daughter during Ramadan. And it's bat boot, okay? So it may not be a sandwich, but it's a mini pitta. It's a Moroccan pitta called batbout, and it's a skillet bread, and it's a yeasted bread, which is made with semolina and plain flour, salt, yeast. Very, very simple. But they kind of expand and puff up like you would imagine a pitta. Mm. But they're quite small, and you stuff it with chicken mm. and spices. And for me, that isn't a sandwich, but that's the only sandwich I'll eat, okay? Yeah. <laughs> We're going to count that as a sandwich, because okay. that sounds absolutely delicious. <laughs> um, and it's perfect when you uh, break your fast, because you can have it with a gorgeous soup. Sometimes I make a harira, which is a Moroccan soup. My daughter's half Moroccan, so her culture is really important to me. So we keep a lot of that for Ramadan, actually. There's a lot of Moroccan recipes I use. Uh, so yeah, the harira with this faux Moroccan sandwich. <laughs> Please, can you make me one, Shalina? I will. <laughs> <laughs> so you moved back to Southampton after MasterChef and fulfilled a lifelong dream by opening a restaurant, yes. La Caz Maman, which means mum's house. And it features authentic Mauritian street food with a modern twist. I have so many questions. 
Did the reality of having your own restaurant live up to the dream? Okay, so we all have dreams and the dream of being, the the dream of having a restaurant was just rose tinted for so many years. You think like it's going to be a place, it's a bit like Cheers, you know, where everyone knows your name. (laughs) They come up, you get the same regulars, they come and eat from the same pot. And it's not because you don't always have the same people and you can't always be there. So it did and it didn't. It has surpassed my expectations because actually I had limited knowledge of what a professional restaurant would be like to run. And is that a good thing? Like, would you have done it if you'd have known more? No. Okay, so that's a good thing. Yeah, no, you're right. (laughs) That's a really good question. I would not have done it had I known what it would have been like. Okay. I would have been like, no, you know what? I'm happy just doing some private catering now and then. I'll keep a set of crockery at home and people can call me. It's such a romantic notion to have your own restaurant or a bakery. or You're not unusual in, in dreaming of that, but you are unusual in fulfilling it. Yeah, I think you're right. It's romanticized. Um, but right now the industry is being strangled. So had you asked me this question like three or four years ago before COVID, I would have been like, you know, it's the best thing ever. It's been amazing. It's been hard. Like we, the whole industry has been ignored. We've got things out of our control, financial things out of our control, cost of living crisis, Brexit. We've got the whole rising costs for staff. As an independent business owner, I don't have any investors. There's no one else above me. It's my place. Um, We are being strangled. I say we, like there's another person in this. It's me. (laughs) I am being strangled. The industry is hard. I want the most for my staff. I want them to have the best opportunity and the best work life. I don't want them to have to work more hours. I care about my my staff like they're my family. And the industry is so hard that we're trying to balance all the costs right now. So yeah, I think it was really romantic. The reality was it was really hard. I had to really understand finances. I had to become financially astute. Even though I had all these creative things I wanted to do, I had to rein that in and think, right, what is going to make financial sense? That has helped being a project manager before being a creator Mm. because we're still here seven years on. I would say we, the restaurant, are still here. But for how long is the biggest question. I would also like to tell the listeners that, as I was saying to you before we started the interview, that when lockdown happened and you had to close, um, and obviously it was a really difficult time, you, at your own expense took immediately to start cooking food for the NHS and for the homeless, which is an amazing thing to do. Well, I really feel that our restaurant is steeped in community. Uh, Southampton means a lot to me. It was a city that I was born in and it didn't make sense that I could eat lovely food during COVID and there were people that were not getting access to the same thing. So I asked the staff, do you fancy cooking with me? We can come together, we'll wear masks, we'll separate safely Everyone was like, yes, please, we all miss each other. We are a family. So it gave us emotional support, selfishly, in a way. We all needed each other. Um, But at the same time, knowing that we could make a difference was something I wanted the staff to feel. I've always, my whole life has been steeped in making sure that I continue to do kind acts. I just don't think, yeah, I just think that I feel privileged that I was born in this country. I always feel that way. So I always want to try and do good. And I want my daughter to see that and know that's integral to who we are as people. Um, And kind acts shouldn't be just because people can see it. Mm. They should be done in secret as well. And I think that's really important. Let's talk about the fifth desert island dish. And that's the dish you eat the most often. 
So this dish is, for me, it's pure comfort. It is the dish that I make the most often. It is the dish that I'll be cooking tomorrow night when I finish my travels in London. It is the dish that I make whenever I feel sick, tired, or it's my homecoming dish. And it is a Mauritian ladob. And a ladob is essentially a chicken stew. And I suppose it's, it's, it is chicken soup. You know, there's always a version of a chicken stew or soup in any different culture. And it is comforting because it's replenishing and it's full of flavor and it makes me feel happy and relaxed and I feel like I am home finally. And it's fried with, uh, always starts with onions, garlic, ginger, some dried chili and some paprika. We add paprika to ours. Fry that down with the chicken. Let the chicken's juices naturally come out. Always chicken on the bone, please. That's where all the flavor is. It almost creates like a gelatinous kind of sauce. We add carrots and potatoes to ours cook it down and it has like a simple stock almost that's created inside the kind of casserole. Maybe that's the best way to describe it. Served with rice, served with pickles, served with chilies. My stomach is growling now because I'm thinking of home. <laughs> Literally really growling. And that is the dish I make all day, every day. My purest, most simplest version of comfort. Okay. Well, when can I move in? <laughs> I've heard you say that travel is really important to you and you use it to fuel your creativity. I know that you went to Thailand for the first time when you were doing MasterChef, but I wondered where is the place you visited where you feel like you've learned the most about yourself? Gosh, that is a big question. For me, the minute I ever feel like I'm losing creativity, travel. Because travel was the only thing that will help me and remember that there is limitless potential for food. You'll never stop learning about food. I have to say, though, um, Morocco has had a massive impact on me uh, in terms of uh, my culinary expertise. I wasn't so familiar with North African cuisine for, for many, many years. Um, but with my daughter, it's something that is going to be part of my life forever with her. And I want to know all about it. And Morocco is massive. It's humongous. And there are so many different regional variations to the point that I posted a recipe very recently and I stated this is a Moroccan bread that I've learned. And Instagram went wild. It's had 1.5 million views with horrific responses. Oh, why? Um, because I've seemed to have offended all of the Middle East and all of North Africa. Shalina. Egyptians, Algerians, <laughs> Tunisians. They've all gone Libyans. They've gone nuts at me. Why? Because they think it's their national dish. Yes. Okay. And I actually did... I mean, if only people had the volume up and read the captions, it would say, I learned this from a particular area in Morocco. This is something we have at home because my daughter's half Moroccan. The comments are actually mostly lovely. A lot of people saying, thank you so much for teaching your daughter our culture. A lot of people wouldn't do that. The recipe is beautiful and it's a simple masimman, um, which is a bread. But yeah, I would say Morocco has a massive impact on me because mm -hmm. I want to keep learning for my daughter. The other places in the world that have had a significant impact on me is Italy because of the amount of times I've gone. I've gone there so much. I love so much about Italian cuisine. It's so different to Mauritian cuisine. But without a doubt, the place that I continue to unearth is Mauritius because I never stop learning that there is so much more to our food identity and our food history. So each time I go back, I learn something new. I learn that people cook things so differently at home based on their 
religious identity. So a Muslim biryani is not the same as a Hindu biryani. And that's really beautiful to know. So yeah, Mauritius is the place that I will keep going back to mm. because it's the unearthing of my soul, I suppose. On a different note, I came across something that made me laugh and I hope you don't mind me sharing it, Shalina. <laughs> you said when you were 21, you went to Ayanapa and you, <laughs> you expected great Cypriot food, but you didn't get any. And it turned out to be the worst food experience of your life. Everything was deep fried. The staple was chicken Kiev and you didn't get anything fresh or green for miles. Crikey, what a statement. If you go back in time, I'm sorry to the Cypriots, okay? Um... Ayanapa was excellent. I was 19 years old. There was like 20 of us that went. So no one was walking miles for food. It yeah. was just based on the vicinity we were in. Yeah, you go to the wrong spot, that's what you're going to get. We were in no good spots. So yeah, I have been back to Cyprus. Yeah. I've already done Cyprus. I've gone back and we've rectified that issue. Yeah. Cypriot Some food of the is, best food in the world, we should say that, like, obviously. And no offense Cypri to Ayanapa, but it's Cypriot just food is delicious. Laugh. Yeah. Absolutely delicious. My head chef is Greek, so she would kill me if I said anything other than that. <laughs> um, but Ayanapa was a blast. It was amazing. <laughs> and I now have memories of Ayanapa. <laughs> We're on to the sixth desert island dish, and that's your go-to dinner party dish. Okay, so when this question came up, I thought, this is assuming that I'm having dinner parties, okay? Yes. I'm a single mum of a five-year-old, so there are a few things that happen in life, and a few of those things do not revolve around me hosting dinner parties. I have family over. I have friends over. I'll lay the table. It will look beautiful, but it's not a dinner party in the sense of courses and service and formality. So for me, when I have a dinner party, in my sense of the word dinner party, it's food that needs to be able to feed all my nephews, my daughter, my brother-in-law, just everyone. It has to be all-encompassing. So there is a classic number of dishes I'll always cook. Fried rice. Every child, adult, human that I've met loves my fried rice, Mauritian potato salad, and seasoned chicken. Now, when I say seasoned chicken, I'm talking seasoned, okay? I'm not talking salt and pepper here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm talking seasoned, labored over. It's been in the fridge overnight, and it's been marinating. It's got flavor in the bone from the time that it's been marinated so long. Could be my tandoori chicken. It could just be my fried chicken. Or it could be my red pepper lemon chicken, but it's been seasoned overnight and it's been cared and loved for. And those three things, so a really good seasoned chicken, really good fried rice, really good potato salad. I know it's quite, quite carb heavy, but this is about feeding the masses and, and causing Never pleasure. Never apologize for that, <laughs> And so um, on the sides, we've got chutneys, you have got salads, you've got dips, you've got all the other bits. So it's not just those three things, but those are the core elements of my dinner party. I make so much that you have the takeaway boxes. Everyone goes away with food and there is a lot of pleasure in that kind of dinner party. That's my dream, leaving <laughs> someone's house with a little foil parcel of food. Do you serve a pudding? Yeah, 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 yeah. So I'll also do starters and they'll be like dippy bits basically or Mauritian gadgets, which are mostly deep fried, almost like tapas. Mm -hmm. um, so gadgets will be either little samosas, which will have a veggie filling. Um, they could be deep fried potatoes. I mean, you understand the theme here. So yeah, lots of different snacks and then that would be the main. And then pudding, 
I would do one easy pudding, which is always a meringue. And I'm not making that meringue okay. because I do not have time. Okay, I thought that was quite presumptuous just to declare that as an easy pudding. <laughs> it's an easy pudding because it's a pre-made meringue. You whip up some cream and top it with fruit. Um, I tend to go for like a rose pistachio Middle Eastern flavors because it looks stunning. It looks effective. And then I would cook something, which might be like a sticky toffee pudding. I've got an easy microwave version, which works really, really well. It takes four minutes in the microwave. These are the tricks that I've had to develop as a single parent because I want things that are not going to mean that I'm in the kitchen for the whole evening because I've got her homework to do. <laughs> so I have recipes up my sleeve that are absolutely fine for a woman on her own or a man on their own to make and still feed people and make you feel proud mm. you know the whole point about serving delicious food is that you want to feel proud of yourself that you have accomplished something even if that is a microwave sticky toffee pudding or a microwave chocolate fudge cake do it oh yes definitely do it on desert island dishes we have a cookbook corner so i wondered what is your most treasured cookbook so for me the one that has been labored over more and it's kind of greasy, it's got splatters all over it, is Anissa Helou. I hope I've pronounced her name correctly. And the book is called Levant and it's stunning. There are no pictures in it, if I remember correctly. Um, it's a book and it's a book of Middle Eastern and North African cuisine. Just the beautiful writing and des description. And she is such a good chef. Every one of her recipes that I have tried has been perfect. You know, sometimes you pick up a book and it just doesn't turn out the way you need it to. Yeah. But hers is written with pure authenticity. She is a traveled chef, cookery writer. All of her books have been perfect. So I've never met her before. And I feel like when I do, I'm just going to hug her. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's interesting because quite a few of the books that get chosen for Cookbook Corner, they are the classic ones that don't have images and it's interesting it just goes to show you don't need the photos if the recipes are as you say authentic yeah but I think I'm reading them for some level of nostalgia mm. as well so I think for the everyday home cook they need yeah. pictures yeah and everyone wants to be able to have a guide or a reference but I suppose for me this is like beautiful literature mm. and You're reading it like a novel exactly yeah for me it's like my it's like my my reading on holiday. I'll take yeah. a cookbook and read it. You know, that's what I actually enjoy doing. <laughs> We're on to the final seventh desert island dish. And that's the last dish you would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island. The one dish I would always choose is a perfectly cooked steak. Ooh. And it's controversial, but you very rarely get an excellent steak. Mm. So I'm talking about an exceptionally cooked steak, medium rare, fat rendered perfectly. The perfect steak with peppercorn sauce. And I don't want fat chips. I don't want the steak chips. I want the skinny French fries because there's more crisp on them. There's more oil on them. There's more salt on them. And that's what I want. I want some mushrooms on the side. And I would drink like a sour. I don't drink alcohol. So like a sour mocktail, passion fruit maybe in mm. there or dark cherries. Yeah, that's it. That is what I want. Would you like a pudding? No, I'm not okay. a pudding girl. Okay. I am someone who orders a starter for a pudding. As in before your main course or after? <laughs> when people are having puddings, I'll have a starter. Oh my goodness, Shalina. <laughs> I love that. Or oh, I'll have... I never thought of that. <laughs> or I'll have a coffee. So um, yeah. yeah, no, I just don't really, I'm not 
often into puddings. Okay. Um, I am. I like to finish with a coffee. That yeah. would be. It'll probably be an espresso when everyone's having puddings. Where would you like this perfectly cooked steak to come from? Have you had a perfect steak in a restaurant? Is there an experience that you've had, or is someone making it? Yeah. I mean, weirdly enough, the best steak I've ever had was in Abu Dhabi. It was perfect. And I, I wonder if it's one of those core cool memory things as well. It was the perfect steak with the perfect peppercorn sauce, the perfect fried mushrooms and the perfect mocktail. Sounds like heaven. Thank you so much, Shalina. Those were your desert island dishes. Thank you so much. I am very hungry now. So there we have it, another delicious day of Desert Island Dishes. If you enjoy the podcast, do think about subscribing wherever you're listening. And it's now time for our weekly review of the week. And this one is from AW020599, which is a pretty catchy username. <laughs> they say some very nice things about the podcast, which I'm very grateful for. And then they go on to say, I just listened to the Jesse Another Day in Paradise episode and I loved it so much. He truly had me feeling like I can do so many things with my life. And you can tell through Margie's questions how much he loves food and the experience of food. I'm now off to look up the cookbooks that he mentioned. I couldn't agree more with this. We've had so many messages about Jesse. One look at his social media channels and you can tell how passionate he is about food and that passion really came through in his episode. I think it's also the fact that he's had several very successful careers and that's also really inspiring for people to hear. And it's definitely just one of the episodes that I've had the most messages about. So thank you very much for that review. The cookbook he recommended is by the founder of Chet's, which is a restaurant that's just opened in London. And the book is called Night and Market, and it's delicious Thai food. And I have recently also got the book off the back of Jesse's recommendation, and I also could not recommend it more. It's gorgeous and delicious, and I've already cooked several things from it. So yes, highly recommend that. If you'd like your review read out next week, then you know what to do. If you don't already, then do come and follow us on Instagram at Desert Island Dishes. And you can sign up for the newsletter on the website desertislanddishes.co. And there you'll get emails telling you about that week's guest and so much more. Thank you again to Lloyds Bank, our sponsor for this season of Desert Island Dishes. And I will see you next week. Thank you so much for listening. Bye.